episode 42 of the podcast history does you today we'll be talking about the fall of the roman republic its transition from a democratic government to an autocratic empire then we'll be featuring dr edward watts so i think this is it comes at an interesting time particularly not just in american politics but politics across the globe there have been books a lot of writing talking about kind of the decline of sort of democratic norms, democratic institutions, democratic governments in favor of more autocratic, oppressive sort of governments. And I think that for a variety of reasons, but taking you back to ancient Rome, I think it offers an interesting blueprint into basically how democracies fail. You'd be hard pressed to find as old of an example, which I think is quite interesting. And also that we don't really tend to learn much. In particular, I think when we look at the American founders, they looked to ancient Rome, ancient Greece as kind of the framework of how to structure a democratic representative government that sort of with different checks and balances in place to prevent the corruption and the oppression that eventually developed and led to the fall of the Roman Republic. So again, I think we don't really talk a lot about sort of modern American politics. It's interesting, but I think there are quite a few parallels and I definitely would recommend thinking about that as you kind of listen to the interview. So I hope you enjoy it. It's a really interesting episode and interesting about kind of ancient democracy, which and how similar and how different they both are when comparing to today's governments. Today, we welcome Dr. Edward Watts to the podcast. He is a professor of history at UC San Diego, focusing on intellectual and religious history of the Roman Empire and the early Byzantine Empire. He's written several books on the ancient world, including City and School and Late Antique Athens and Alexandria, Riot in Alexandria, Historical Debate in Pagan and Christian Communities, which was a 2010 Prose Award Honorable Mention. He's also written The Final Pagan Generation, which was awarded the 2015 Phi Alpha Theta Best Subsequent Book Prize, and Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. So welcome on. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And to start, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is your favorite? And how did you become interested in ancient Rome? So I think Roman history, obviously, is the thing that I spend the most time doing. And for me, the Roman Empire and the Roman state actually is incredibly fascinating because with the Roman state, you have a political entity that exists for more than 2000 years. And so for me, the thing that's most fascinating about that is understanding how you can have a political entity that is able to begin as a city-state in central Italy and end up as a Christian Greek-speaking empire based in Constantinople. There's just something historically incredibly remarkable about a polity that changes its shape and changes its definition and changes its structure and changes its religion and its language, and yet still has this continuous history. So for me, that's the big story, I think, that I'm trying to tell. And I'm trying at every instance to try to understand that story better and appreciate both Rome on its own terms, but then also what Rome can help us understand about ourselves, about a contemporary world, and about how a state can be that adaptable and resilient. Because I think it's not only incredibly rare, but also incredibly instructive to think in those terms as we live in a society that faces challenges and faces struggles and has to make choices about how we adapt and how we respond to the things that we encounter. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in your field, whether it's researching or writing different books? 
I think one of the biggest challenges that you get when you're working across such a vast span of time is your research materials change depending on the period you're looking at. So, I mean, a great example of this is when you're working on the later Roman Republic, you have almost nothing in terms of literary sources from the 70s BC, but you have a massive amount of material in literary sources from the 60s BC. And so in the 70s, you're struggling to even figure out basically what is going on when and where. And in the 60s, you actually know what people like Cicero are doing almost on a daily basis. And so you go from basically trying to reconstruct a decade on the basis of almost nothing, really, really small amounts of material. And then 10 years later, you're swimming in stuff. You have so much material that in some ways you have to do a completely different historiographical project in trying to understand what you do with multiple sources that tell different accounts of the same event for events, say, in 63 BC. And in 73 BC, you don't even know what's happening on some level. And so I think that's one of the greatest challenges is working as a Roman historian and working as a Byzantine historian means that at different points in time, you have different types of evidence. And sometimes you have robust evidence in a whole bunch of different areas. And in some cases, you have effectively very little evidence. And if you're trying to work across all of these periods, you have to adapt and be flexible and respond to the evidence you have and do the best you can, even if you're not the most comfortable with working with what you've got for a particular time period. And to get into the Roman Republic, which we'll be talking about today up until the Roman Empire, can you just briefly describe how the Roman Republic was founded and generally how the government functioned in the context of the ancient world? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that are interesting about the Roman Republic. Well, there are more than a couple, but there are a couple of things interesting in relation to your question. The foundation of the Republic comes basically, it seems, as a counter-revolution. One of the last Roman kings is a man named Servius Tullius, who leads a kind of populist or an upper middle class redefinition of the Roman structure of government. And what this does effectively is disenfranchise wealthy, aristocratic, sort of the hereditary aristocracy of the Roman state, which is the patricians. And the Republic is the counter-revolution by the patricians against this order that was set up by Servius Tellius. And so in a sense, it's a reaction by the hereditary aristocracy against a form of government that was designed to reward people who were kind of upper middle class or lower upper class and had gotten their wealth and gotten their power and gotten their prominence, not because of who they were born to, but because of their talent and their ability to make money. And so the counter-revolution that creates the Republic is seen by Romans as a move towards freedom and incorporation, a move toward liberty. Uh, but in reality, what this actually starts as is an attempt by a hereditary aristocracy to remove power from a broader base of people that was in some ways more inclusive. And what you get for the next over 200 years is a process of negotiation between patricians and non-patricians, who Romans call plebeians, where plebeians continue to push for more and more of a role in how the Republic works. And so what starts as an aristocratic counter-revolution ends up becoming a representative democracy where basically citizens are able to choose representatives who make and execute policy on their behalf. But those representatives are drawn from all segments of Roman society, at least in theory. In practice, of course, they're rich people. 
but they are not hereditary aristocrats. That still remains a significant part of who is governing the republic for the entirety of the republic. But what you see over time is the republic becomes a structure that incorporates people from territories that Rome has conquered, makes them citizens, and allows those people to rise up through the ranks by winning elections, getting votes, and directing policy in a way that becomes more and more inclusive. And so the story on some level of the Republic is a story of an entity that starts out as a very conservative counter-revolution, but ultimately grows into a representative democracy that is built around the idea of incorporating and involving the most talented people and the most capable people across an ever-expanding citizen base. So that eventually what starts out as a very small, closed group of people running the Roman state becomes a government that represents all of the people living in Italy. And so you have their remarkable transformation of the political system in a way that does not ever involve violent revolution. This is all done through compromise, consensus building, and the slow process of negotiation that makes this transformation so remarkable. And within this political system, just kind of explore different parts of it, was corruption a big problem throughout these different institutions or were there kind of checks and balances as we call them today to provide oversight and make sure people didn't take advantage? Yes, that's a great question. So across the Republic, the stories we hear from Romans is in the early Republic, corruption was not a huge problem. And there's a few reasons for that. I mean, one reason is when you're in Rome, the economy is not really monetized. They don't really have their own coinage until you get into the third century BC. And so it's very, very hard to corrupt somebody when you don't actually have money to do it with. So it's very easy in that context to see if somebody is benefiting improperly from this. As you get into the later Republic, you do see that corruption becomes a real problem. And this is especially true as Rome expands out of Italy and starts taking over territories outside of Italy, where the people in those territories are not basically going to be Roman citizens. So those people are exploited by their governors, and the Roman Republic has a system of government where it assesses taxes more or less based on what a tax collector is able to take from people. And so there's a tremendous incentive in that context to enrich yourself through governing a province and taking advantage of the people there. And as you get into the later Republic, corruption does become an issue. But the system of government does have considerable checks and balances in it. Romans are concerned about corruption, but they see that as in some ways separate from the proper operation of their state. And so the checks and balances are things they put in place or they allow to develop so that they can prevent anybody from exercising dominant political control over the state. And so every magistrate, every person who's elected to office has at least one colleague with equal power. And the idea there is both to check people from doing bad things and trying to seize power for themselves, but also to ensure that any policy or any action that's taken is done on the basis of compromise. Because if you have a magistrate who has a colleague who has the same powers, you have to cooperate. You can't just ram things through and ignore the other person. And so in that sense, I think the Republic is really dedicated to ideas of checks and balances, not so much as a principle to eliminate corruption, but as a principle to ensure that the Republic functions as it's supposed to, and that Romans are all represented in the largest possible way in the policies that are being developed and executed. And were there political parties in the Roman Republic, or did everyone in office more or less hold the same sort of ideologies? 
So this is an interesting question. There are not political parties. You do have ideological, I suppose you could say like ideological perspectives that Romans have. And sometimes those are consistent. So someone like Cato the Elder or someone like Julius Caesar, they are ideologically consistent more or less across their career. Julius Caesar is a populist. Uh, Julius Caesar believes that generally speaking, the government should do things to enhance the economic position of regular people and poor people. And Cato didn't believe this. And Cato was what Romans would call a member of a group that Romans call or that Romans in this group call optimates or the best. And Cato is a very consistently conservative figure. But you do have figures like Pompey the Great who bounce between these positions. And so there are moments where Pompey is acting as a populist. There are moments where Pompey is acting as a conservative. There are moments where Pompey is using violence to support really reactionary policies. There are moments when Pompey is threatening violence to support really progressive sort of populist policies. And because there are no political parties in Rome, that the space to do things like that is very open. So every politician, in a sense, is playing an individual sport, right? In our politics, we really are playing team sports, where Republicans are on a team and they cooperate with each other and they compete with each other within the context of that party, but they work to advance the interests of that party. In Rome, every politician is an individual. And so they can make alliances with other individuals, but those alliances are not bound by any structure or any kind of party apparatus. They exist for as long as they're useful to the two people who make those alliances. And because of that, Roman politicians can bounce politically between all sorts of different governing philosophies, depending on what they think is advantageous to their career at that moment. And I think it's actually more typical to see Romans be ideologically inconsistent than to see people like Caesar or Cato, who are politically consistent and ideologically consistent across a long career. And to wrap up kind of this governmental system, how did the military and the government interact? Was the military a professional force or was it more of an army of citizen soldiers? Yeah, in the Republic, the army is initially only citizen soldiers. There is a requirement that you have to be a property holder or an expectation that you have to be a landholder because you're supposed to be fighting as a stakeholder in this kind of Roman corporation. And so it's your obligation as a citizen to defend the nation and to defend its territory. And you are a stakeholder in that territory in the, because you own some of the land. And through the Second Punic War, you see, and even through the second century, you see this system in place where Roman generals, when they get a command, they have to put together a citizen army. And those citizens go and they serve for ideally not a terrible long period of time. And then they return home and they go back to their land and they farm and they go back to their lives. As you move into the later Republic, things begin to blur a little bit. And so you do still have citizen levies, but the rules about citizens serving in the army being required to hold property are loosened in the late second century. And a man named Marius finally does away with these requirements and recruits armies of people who don't have property. 
And what Marius recognizes is that these people, if they can be rewarded for their service, are incentivized to serve for longer and to serve basically more aggressively. And so Marius uses this army of landless to win victories, military victories on behalf of Rome, but he also uses them as a political pressure group to try to get property given to them as a reward for their service, but also other political objectives accomplished as well. And this sets a precedent where soldiers begin to become more loyal to their generals than they are to the Roman state. They're not yet a professional army, but they're also not quite the citizen levies that you would have in, say, the third century BC, where these are people who serve for like a campaign season and go back to their farms. These are now people who are invested in the careers of their leadership, and they serve for longer periods of time because of that. And the ultimate effect of this is you have figures like the dictator Sulla, who use these soldiers against the Roman state and use their armies that are loyal to them as commanders to march against Rome and take the city of Rome and use violence against their fellow citizens. And this does ultimately get you to the point where under Augustus, the army becomes a professional army. And there are advantages and disadvantages to this. I mean, the advantage is that army fights far better than a citizen levy could ever fight. What the Romans tended to do is use these citizen levies to overwhelm adversaries because Rome had more manpower. And so there were times when Rome did fight professional armies. The battle against Pyrrhus of Epirus is the greatest example of this, where Romans mobilize citizen armies. They lose the battle. They fight okay. I mean, they fight effectively, but they lose two battles to Pyrrhus. But they can replenish their supply of soldiers much faster because they can just bring more people, more citizens onto the field. Pyrrhus cannot replace a professional army as quickly. And so Pyrrhus ultimately has to leave the war and sue for peace, even though he's won two victories against the Romans. And so this is one of the advantages of the citizen army. But the professional army is a higher quality army. And you do see occasions where Roman armies with similar equipment, but different levels of experience fight each other. And the professional armies just cut the citizen armies to pieces. There is a real advantage to a professional army if you can politically control it. And that was the challenge Augustus figured out how to resolve. And throughout the kind of Roman Republic, would you say there was a specific moment or a leader that led to the undermining of Rome's political institutions, or was it a very long-running process? I think that the reason the Republic falls is a long-running process, and a process that basically consists of Romans being complacent about the fact that their Republic could last forever. And Cicero actually says something like this in the last generation before the Republic falls, where Cicero says that the Republic actually is something that if done correctly, and if governed according to the principles that Romans have long established, it should last forever. And it is something that can die, but it doesn't need to die. And in fact, it's an incredible tragedy if it does die, because the Republic could be eternal. This is an idea that I think a lot of Romans shared. But it's also an idea that fosters a sense of political complacency. Because if you believe your state can last forever, you are willing to cut corners on defending the principles and practices and rules and laws of that state because you feel like there isn't going to be any long-term damage. And even Cicero is guilty of this. I mean, there are many moments where Cicero says, there should never be the use of violence in political life because that's like a death blow to a republic. A republic cannot function when it's governed by violence instead of governed by law. But there is a moment, there are a couple moments actually, where Cicero does condone the use of violence in a political context because it's good for Cicero. 
And so there's this inconsistency, even in someone like Cicero, who understands the seriousness of breaking the customs and breaking the laws that keep the Republic strong. Even Cicero, at certain moments, will condone the actions that he himself has said are destructive because he believes that the Republic is robust and is potentially eternal. And that small moment doesn't in the long scheme of things matter. But once you add up all of those small moments, they do matter. And so the story that Romans tell of the fall of the Republic centers on huge personalities. It centers on people like Tiberius Gracchus and Marius and Sulla and Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great and ultimately Augustus. But those people were empowered to do what they did by all of these millions of people who took shortcuts and allowed them to do these things because they felt the Republic would survive extra legal or extra constitutional activities. And so it's on one level, the responsibility of these powerful individuals, but those powerful individuals wouldn't be in a position to do what they did if it weren't for those millions of people who took the Republic for granted and were complacent about defending its practices, its principles, its customs, and its laws. And to kind of wrap up sort of the introduction to the Republic and the lead up to kind of the founding of the empire, there was a series of civil wars. How did these civil wars impact the Republic? Did this lead common citizens to sort of lose faith in these governing institutions and eventually the state itself? Yeah. So there are really three major outbreaks of civil war in the last century of the common era, or the last century of the Republic. And the first of these is Scylla's use of his forces against Rome. And uh, this did really devastate Romans' faith in the ability of the Republic to defend their lives and their property. Because as Scylla won this civil war, he massacred large numbers of people, in some cases publicly, killing thousands of people and in one case, killing almost 10,000 people in the Circus Maximus while the Senate was meeting to listen to Sulla's speech about what the Republic would look like after Sulla's victory. And the Senate meeting, we're told, actually was conducted with senators trying to yell above the screaming of the prisoners being tortured to death. And these were Roman citizens that Sulla was killing. And so there are moments like that where, of course, Romans are going to fear for what their republic is. But what Sulla did was he assumed power as a dictator, but said that that power was going to be used to reconstruct the republic. And then once he felt like he'd done that, he stepped aside and he let the republic kind of go back to a representative democracy with elections and selection of people for offices. And a lot of Romans were so traumatized by the Civil War that they, for about a generation, tried to defend the institutions that Sulla had created, even though they had understood that the Republic was now something that was fragile and the state was not always able to guarantee the life and property of its citizens. The Second Civil War, which was a civil war that began with Julius Caesar fighting Pompey and then kind of spread into Julius Caesar fighting a number of other people. This was a civil war that was conducted by people who had either participated in the civil war with Sulla or been victims of Sulla. So Caesar himself was victimized by Sulla and his father's family was forced to relinquish all of their property by Sulla. And Sulla actually asked Julius Caesar to divorce his first wife because she belonged to a family of his opponents. And so in the second civil war, what you see Caesar doing is of course fighting a civil war. 
which is not upholding the Republic. But Caesar refused to use the power of his office and the power that he had seized through this war to take property and lives from people unless it was absolutely necessary. And so Caesar famously pardoned large numbers of his adversaries including Brutus and Cassius, who would eventually assassinate Caesar. And so in that context, what you see is Caesar starts playing constitutionally with a new order, but he's still trying to uphold the legal structures of the Republic that guarantee the life and property of Roman citizens. And so in a way, Sulla tried to revert back to a political order that preceded the Civil War, but undermined the basic protections that a Republic provides to its citizens. Caesar had no interest in going back to a constitutional order that preceded his civil war, but he was very interested in guarding the principles that the Republic was supposed to uphold. In the third civil war, the one that actually ended the Republic and was won by the Emperor Augustus, Augustus basically blended the worst of Caesar and Sulla. Augustus was perfectly happy to kill other Romans. He killed large numbers of other Romans. He was perfectly happy to seize property. He seized more property than Sulla did. He was also perfectly happy to undo constitutional arrangements. And so he is, in a way, a constitutional disruptor like Caesar was trying to be, and also a social and political disruptor like Sulla was. And in the end, that was what did in the Republic. Augustus, after he won the Civil War, claimed that he had restored the Republic. But in practice, what he had done was created a system where he as an individual was the ultimate guarantor of the life and property of Roman citizens. And the political system was one that looked like the Republic to a degree, but ultimately was something that was subject to his approval and his manipulation according to what he saw most benefited Romans, but also what most benefited him personally. And to kind of get into Caesar and Augustus, were they able to kind of create these kind of cults of personality that were able to gain support of the people and then battle against the so-called elites that people might have seen as corrupt or incompetent? How were they able to navigate that? Yeah, I think a cult of personality is quite interesting in the context of Caesar, because one thing that Caesar understood was how to manipulate popular opinion. Caesar was very, very good at this. And I think one of the best examples of this is the Gallic war commentaries that Caesar was sending home, where Caesar spent much of the 50s BC conquering what's now like France, Belgium, parts of the Netherlands, parts of Germany, parts of Switzerland, he invaded Britain. And this is an area that's very remote to Romans. This is not territory they're familiar with. And so what Caesar realized is that he had the capacity to kind of instruct Romans in what he was doing and why it was important and why the victories that he was winning mattered so much. And so the Gallic War commentaries are Caesar's way of, in essence, kind of creating a popular understanding of what he personally can accomplish. And it's also done in a way that on some level is almost terrifying because he's inspiring his soldiers to do superhuman things. I mean, some of the things that are recorded in the Gallic War commentaries, they're like overwhelming in the way that he inspires his soldiers to fight for him and to fight for a cause. This is, of course, terrifying, right? You have somebody who personally can inspire people to do superhuman things. And the thing that's crazy about it is that actually seems to have been true. Caesar's armies were the best armies of the Republic. I mean, pretty clearly, they were the best armies of the Republic. And you see this when, in the aftermath of Caesar's assassination, Mark Antony goes and attacks the city of Mutina in central Italy. 
And Antony is confronted by an army that is a Roman citizen army. Antony has troops that are veteran troops, but he's confronted by an army that's a Roman citizen army, and Antony's forces just cut them to pieces. And then Augustus, at that point, who was called Octavian, shows up with one of the old Caesarian armies, and it just destroys Antony's army. I mean, it's as much better than Antony's army as Antony's army was better than the raw recruits that were thrown at them before. And so what Caesar did was he made people understand what he had accomplished. And this did create a sense of Caesar as a persona. And he really understood how to use the media available to him at the time to create that persona, spread knowledge of that persona, and then make it so that people not only respected that persona, but also on some level almost feared that persona. Augustus had a longer time to do this. Augustus started his political career when he was 19, and he died at 76. And so Augustus had a very long time to not only create a popular understanding of who he was, but allow that understanding to evolve. And so during the Civil Wars, Augustus created a kind of popular understanding of himself as the almost bloodthirsty heir of Caesar, somebody that you feared, you respected him for promoting and protecting the legacy of Caesar, but you also kind of feared what he might do to you. So with Augustus, the early career of Augustus was something where Augustus was a fearsome and terrifying figure. And that's not a sustainable position for one to have if you're going to run an empire for a long period of time. It's something that will encourage people who are afraid of you to overthrow you when they get the chance. And so what Augustus realized when he had won the civil wars is he needed to transition. And what Augustus was able to do was transition to this position of the guarantor of Roman stability and the person who bailed out Romans when there were problems. And so when you read the Res Gestae, which is Augustus's personal account of what he did during his career, Augustus emphasizes that he brings peace, that he brings stability, and also that he uses his personal resources to pay for food supplies when Rome is hit by famine, to rebuild structures that have been damaged in war or in natural disasters. And so Augustus sort of transitions this position of the fearsome and feared leader of a faction during a civil war and transitions into the guarantor of stability and peace. And that transition is very smart because what that means is if you're going to overthrow Augustus, you're overthrowing a figure who now everyone has become accustomed to thinking about as the individual who makes Rome work, as the individual who makes Rome stable, as the individual who protects you when things go wrong. That's not where he started. It's the opposite in a sense of where he started. So the great sensibility of Augustus is understanding how to create this personal not cult of personality, but a persona that is understood by everybody early in his life as the vicious and vengeful heir of Julius Caesar. And he transforms himself to the guarantor of stability and prosperity and uses some of the same mechanisms to do this. It's a very, very interesting transition. And it's not something that many leaders in history are able to accomplish. And did any of the institutions that were built during the Republic, did they play any role during the empire or were they more or less artificial? Many of the institutions continue to play a role in the empire, but a lot of them also drop away. So the Senate remains an institution that is very important. And the Senate represented a deliberative body of initially patricians, but ultimately former office holders. And 
In the Republic, the Senate worked alongside magistrates and popular assemblies where citizens voted on laws, but it basically still operated as an advisory body. And magistrates could go around the Senate in the Republic if they really wanted to. Didn't happen very often, but they could do that if they wanted to. What Augustus understood is this advisory body was useful. They provided a group of people that you could govern the empire through, but also blame things on if something didn't work. And so you would send senatorial governors out to provinces. And if they did a good job, great. That's good for the Senate. It's also good for Augustus. If they do a bad job, then Augustus has the capacity to step in and say, look, the Senate messed this up. The Senate messes stuff up. I fix things. And so it's a mutually beneficial thing. It also gives Romans who are prominent enough that they could potentially cause trouble for an emperor, a position where they can collaborate with the emperor, cooperate with the emperor, and be involved to some degree in running the empire. And so it gave them a meaningful place in Roman political life. And so the Senate is a very useful thing for them to keep going. In religious life, a lot of the institutions of the Republic are also kept going. So a lot of the priesthoods, the temple operations, other entities of Roman sacred life, these are things the emperors also very much want to keep going. And again, it's the similar reason. It is a way of keeping people involved in the political life of the society. And what it also does is it allows good emperors to present themselves as basically the first among equals, as uh, senators who rose to this position, but are serving as emperor, not because they're greedy, power-hungry, kind of tyrannical people, but because it's their duty as Romans to do it, and they were chosen to do it, they're going to keep doing it. But the attributes that made them successful as senators are the same attributes they're going to bring to running the empire. So there's a lot of reasons why some of these things should be kept going. What the emperors really did not try to protect are things like free elections. There are still magistrates that have the titles of the old Republican magistrates, and these remain in place for 500 years at least into the empire. I mean, the consulship is the highest office in the Republic, and consuls continue to be named every year into the 6th century AD. This is a useful thing, but the consuls in the 6th century AD are not doing what the consuls in the 1st century BC did. It's a ceremonial thing. And so some of these things are kept in place because it's useful to emperors to have these honors and offices to give to people. But they aren't running election campaigns. There isn't popular votes. The contiones, which are these meetings where the populace comes together to listen to debates about legislation, those things are not happening under the emperors. And so a lot of the things that actually gave meaning to the representative democracy and the electoral democracy in the Roman Republic, those do stop under Augustus or under his successor Tiberius. But a lot of the offices and institutions that were there in the Republic remained for a very, very long time, because those are things that are useful in keeping elites engaged in the operation of the state. And emperors needed those elites engaged for a host of reasons. And just to ask some concluding questions, ultimately, do you think that the Roman Republic could have survived? And if so, how? Yeah, I really wonder about this question. Could it have survived? I think it could have survived, but I think it would have really struggled to survive. And I think the problem is the same problem that we talked about earlier. Romans took for granted the fact that it 
that it was going to survive. And so they made choices in difficult moments that grew out of a suspicion that the Republic could handle the damage that they were doing to it at that time. And it couldn't. And in the end, as you get through the 50s and into the 40s, it becomes clear that people who are powerful do not trust the Republic to protect their interests against their rivals. And they don't trust this because so many people have taken shortcuts and gone around the legal principles and the customs that made their republic functional. So could it have survived? It could have survived, but the challenge would have been Romans needed to step back and say, sometimes the survival of the republic means that I don't get what I want. Like sometimes I lose and it's good for the republic that I lose, but it might not be good for me as an individual to lose. And what Romans did not do is say, I am willing to accept that I don't get what I want. I might never get what I want because that's what it takes to make the Republic strong. And in the first and second centuries BC, Romans were unwilling to say, it's okay if I lose this political argument because this is what the people have said. This is what our structure says. This problem is not going to be resolved like I want it to be resolved. Romans were incapable of doing that. And they got frustrated when the Republic refused or was unable to resolve problems that they felt very seri- they felt were very serious. And they took shortcuts and they found extra legal ways to implement policies they wanted. Ultimately, they attacked rivals. Ultimately, they killed rivals. All of those things did damage to the Republic. It's totally understandable why Romans would make those choices in the short term. They didn't see those choices as, I get what I want now, but I undermine the liberty of my children. It's very hard for a human to step out and make those big picture calculations. But if Romans had made those big picture calculations, the Republic could have survived. And I think it's totally possible to imagine a Republic expanding to include Roman citizens across the Mediterranean, as the empire eventually did. The empire eventually incorporated every single person who was not a slave who lived between Britain and Saudi Arabia in the Mediterranean. All of those people were Romans. That could have been done by the Republic, but there was no way that it would have been done given the way Romans began behaving in the second and first centuries BC. And what lessons do you think the Roman Republic can teach us about democracy and political institutions today? Democracy is fragile. Democracy needs to be protected. And the institutions that a democracy sets up need to be respected. The laws need to be respected. And frankly, people need to accept that sometimes in an electoral democracy, you don't get what you want. And it's important to accept that because the democracy requires you to accept that. If you want to live in a free society and you want to be part of a citizen body that uses elections to make decisions, you have to accept that sometimes you're going to lose those elections. You're going to have to accept that sometimes your representatives are going to compromise in ways that you don't agree with. That's essential to the functioning of a representative democracy. But if people are unwilling to accept those things, then they are also unwilling to support the continued existence of their electoral democracy. And that's the tension I think we're facing right now. I mean, at this very moment, we're facing that tension. And what Romans can show us is that sometimes we have to accept that the rules mean we don't get what we want. It's very hard to do that, especially when the issues that a society faces are so 
crushing. And Rome faced those kinds of issues. Rome faced massive wealth inequality and frustration about the Republic's inability to do anything about it. And that led to political stagnation. It led to ultimately political violence. And it set Rome on a path to not be a representative democracy anymore. It's completely understandable why people would be frustrated. It's completely understandable why people would be angry that they don't get what they feel they need. It's completely understandable that people will look at the personal and not look at the larger programmatic and political consequences. But what Rome shows is when you do this, you put your representative democracy at risk. And that's something we need to keep in mind. And it's something that's very hard for us to keep in mind because representative democracy seems abstract. It seems like something that should be there forever because it has been here for a very long time. What Rome shows is those ideas are dangerous. If you want to have a free representative democracy, you need to defend it. And you need to defend it even at the cost of maybe accepting things that you don't want to accept. And my final question is, overall, what do you think the legacy of the Roman Republic is? It's immense. When you go back and you look Even in the 15th century, when republics start springing up in central Italy, the Roman Republic is the model that they use to try to understand how to structure their society. The fate of the Roman Republic is one that they use to try to plot out what might happen in certain circumstances to their representative democracies. It's something that influences French thinkers in the 18th century, like Montesquieu. It's something that influences the founding fathers in the United States. It's something that influences our political life now. Its legacy is tremendous because it's one of the most successful, long-standing republics in the history of the world. And it's also a republic that died. So the thing that Rome shows is both what a republic can do to succeed, what conditions make it successful, what kinds of behaviors, practices, and constitutional structures make a republic robust and stable, and also what things undermine a stable and functional republic. The most remarkable thing about Rome is the republic was founded Traditionally, the date given is 509 BC. The Republic finally dies in 30 BC, officially dies when Augustus is proclaimed Augustus in 27 BC. This is a political entity that lasts for almost 500 years. That's remarkable. And there's no political violence in that state between the middle part of the 5th century BC and the 2nd century BC. The state that is a representative democracy without people dying or fighting in the streets about policy for 300 years. The United States has struggled to go 50 years without this. Never in our history have we escaped political violence for anything even close to like 20% of what the Roman Republic is able to do. None of the other republics in Europe were able to do this. This is a really remarkable thing that the Romans were able to accomplish. And so there's a lot of things that we can take away from that. And that's why it's so influential to thinkers who want to think about how a republic should function. Rome gives you an example of a very successful state, but also a republic that fails. 
And so it not only shows you what you could do, but it also shows you what you should avoid. And this is why people from Bruni to Machiavelli to Montesquieu to John Adams are looking at Rome to try to imagine what a good republic could do and what a bad republic creates because this allows you to see how you structure a state positively and how you build in defenses so that state doesn't collapse in the way that Rome did. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Watts. I did. I always enjoy the conversations and I hope you enjoyed it as well. I think that if there's any takeaways, it would be that democracy is fragile. You can spend lots and lots of time building it, building trust and all that. And all it takes is one event or one person to completely undermine that. As we see it with ancient Rome with Julius Caesar and Octavian and Pompey and all these other figures that wanted to get their way and chose to kind of go down this authoritarian path rather than having a representative democracy, which I think is unfortunate. But also I think it's weird to look at sort of ancient Rome and think about how the fact that some historians will probably argue that the Roman Empire was more successful and more stable than the Roman Republic, even though there are trade-offs. As Dr. Watts was explaining, there were certain institutions that survived after the fall of the Republic and the rise of the empire. But again, it was a lot of this stuff was artificial more than anything. So it's weird to think about. So again, I encourage you just in these weird political times to keep that in mind. And again, you can always, I think, look to history for lessons, particularly in politics. Again, I probably said a million times on the podcast, but there's always that Mark Twain saying that history doesn't repeat it rhymes. So again, I think it's difficult to draw exact parallels, but I think there are a lot of lessons to if you have reached this point in the podcast you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through as always follow us on spotify subscribe on apple podcasts you can also follow us on social media at history does you on instagram or facebook to keep up with new episodes giveaways and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests if you listen to us on apple podcasts and enjoy what we do please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.